Those of you who were here about a month ago will know that we started looking at this uh, whole idea of spiritual battle. And what I mean by that is that every Christian finds themselves in a spiritual battle. And and Paul introduces the whole topic, talking about uh, a battle against Satan, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more. But tonight, what I want to focus on is uh, what it means to put on the armor of God. And specifically, how do we fight this battle that we find ourselves in? And we're going to look at three specific pieces of armor. We're going to look at what it means to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and what I would describe as gospel boots. And as we take up this armor, what I want to show you is that actually this armor isn't just um, the means by which you do the Christian life. Actually, this should change our whole posture as a Christian. And actually, this should create something of a, a kind of sense of courage and confidence and a ruggedness to our faith. It should give us... Um, should sustain us in our walk with God. So um, if you read with me, we're going to look specifically at verses 13 to 15 today, uh, but I'm going to read the whole of uh, chapter 6, verse 10 to 20. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, ruler, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also with me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for your abundant generosity to us. How already, as we've been singing about this evening, Lord, that you have uh, received us, you've welcomed us into your family, that we can come running home to you. Lord, we just thank you for the abundance of your generosity in providing us this armor. Would you help us as we open up your word to understand what it is that you've given us? Would you help us to be equipped? Would you come and fortify our souls? Come and strengthen our arms for battle? Lord, we need you. We need you so much. Would you come and minister to us by your spirit? Would you come and teach us uh, what it means to follow you and to be uh, soldiers in your army? Amen. Amen. So why is this armor so relevant? Why is this armor so important for Christians? Well, really, the essence of what Paul's saying in this passage, and this is certainly true in the first few verses, is that the Christian life is a battle. Paul is in no doubt as to the existence of Satan and more broadly his kind of demonic forces that accompany him. They're not physical, he describes them as spiritual forces of evil. Now I'm aware that right as I say that, there'll be some of you who say, how on earth can you believe in uh, Satan, demonic forces in the 21st century? How can you possibly suggest that to us? Now, I'm not really going to have time to unpack that for you uh, this evening. You're going to have to go back online and look at the first message that I gave on this passage a few weeks ago. But i just say two things. One is if you believe in Christ, then you have to believe in Satan. Jesus is unequivocal about the existence of Satan. The second thing I would say is that you've got to recognize that your um, assumption about the existence of Satan is that an assumption. And what I mean by that is many of you are kind of starting off with the assumption that there's no such thing as a spiritual realm and there's no such thing as Satan simply because this is the, the, the context that you've grown up in. This is the uh, kind of a default assumption of the Western world. But actually, I just caution that assumption just for a moment and consider that actually in much of Latin America, Asia, Africa, actually the default assumption is not that. 
Actually, throughout history, and even today, you can see it creeping in in all sorts of ways in our world, in our world like uh, increasing appetite for different spiritual things, like everything from seances to healing crystals to all sorts of different manifestations. Actually, there is a, a sense in many parts of the world and throughout history in, the, in a conviction that there is such a thing as a spiritual realm. So I wouldn't be so quick to assume its non-existence. But essentially, that's not what I want to focus on tonight. I want to say that Paul is keen that, that, that Christians understand the scale of the battle they're in. He doesn't want them to underestimate Satan. He talks about them as the, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about Satan as a roaring lion seeking to devour Christians. But he also talks that in, elsewhere in the New Testament, we get a picture of two other enemies of the Christian life. Uh, one of those is the flesh. And what it means is not uh, the physical bodies that we inhabit. What it means is that each of us, and I'm talking here as Christians, but all of you will recognize this, that each of us has desires inside ourselves that do not match God's uh, best. They don't, they're sinful desires, for want of a better word. In a sense, what it's saying is the battle is against evil is as much in here as it is out there. He also talks about the world. Now, he's not saying that Christians should remove themselves from the world or uh, kind of stand opposed to the world, looking down, judging the world. What he's saying simply is that as a Christian, uh, you're, in the words of uh, Peter, you're like foreigners and exiles. You live in an alien land, a context where the values and the, uh, many of the ideas and the principles are different to those of Christ. And so in a sense, what he's saying is you don't really quite belong in this world anymore. And so there's a sense to which every Christian must discern, how do we live faithfully in a context where many of the values and principles don't match up with what I believe is important in life? So what, what I'm really arguing here is that the battle that Paul is seeking to draw our attention to here is not a paranormal battle, largely. What I mean by that is really it's the everyday Christian life, that every Christian uh, is, is fighting a battle, seeking to be faithful to Christ in a context where, uh, which is in some sense alien to them, uh, where they have desires that are, that are kind of unwanted or evil desires, and, and they face an enemy who wants to destroy us. In a sense, this is why sometimes, I just argue, this is why the Christian life feels difficult. It's not easy to run against the train of um, the rest of culture. It's uh, sometimes to experience these desires is, is frustrating, so in a sense, if you find that the Christian life is difficult sometimes, realize that this is the reality that Paul is talking about here. But actually, what you've got to understand also is that Paul is not wanting to leave you in a sense of despair and gloom. Paul is wanting to really instruct Christians to stand firm. But more than that, actually he has the expectation and the hope that they will be able to stand firm. In verse 13, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, undoubtedly, I think he's describing the, um, the way that if Christians take up this armor, they will be able to successfully endure. That one day when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, he'll be able to say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done on, on not giving up against all the assaults and the travails that you face in this life. Well done on standing firm. But it also is speaking of a kind of posture, a disposition, that actually the way we, um, it kind of, the way we conduct ourselves in this fight is one of strength. In verse uh, 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And really what I want to argue for you tonight is that when we put on this armor, it has a kind of strengthening to us. It actually gives us a kind of ruggedness, a resilience, an ability to endure this battle. In a sense, it should give us a Christianity that won't be easily overturned or snuffed out. And really what you've got to see actually in this picture is this whole idea of a soldier is one which is inherently laced with this idea of courage or confidence or strength. To run into battle, to fight for your life, inherently requires a kind of forward motion. And where does that forward motion come from except from a, a place of courage and strength? Think about those soldiers in World War I as they waited in the um, trenches for the bugle sound that would send them over the top. And as they had no idea whether when they went over the top that would lead to victory or death. 
You may dispute the, the, the intelligence of those tactics, but at the very least, what it says is that that required deep courage. Think about that iconic moment, and you may not have seen the film, but of Braveheart, when William Wallace, or Mel Gibson, as William Wallace, is, uh, it's got the, you might have seen the pictures, we've got half a blue face, uh, and he is instructing, uh, kind of seeking to encourage the, the Scottish hordes, trying to encourage them and give them a really deep sense of courage to be able to then fight the English. Saying, without this bravery, without this courage, they will stand no chance. Or even in Judges 7, uh, God uh, gives instructions to Gideon, who's assembling his kind of small group of band of warriors to fight the Midianites. And, he sa- and God says, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So in order to fight, in order to uh, fight this battle that is before us, it requires a sense of courage and strength. And my contention to you is, as you put on this armor, this is the key to that courage and strength that you need. And actually, what you've got to understand, Paul is the very model of what he's trying to encourage here. Think about the courage it took Paul to be able to go and preach the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, to experience being flogged, to almost come to death, to uh, create such a, a ruckus, riots in, in cities, broke out in response to what he was doing. And of course, he's writing this letter from prison. He's been imprisoned for the, for the work that he's been doing. And yet that hasn't dented his uh, desire to go and preach the gospel, to continue this work that God's called him to. He's got a deep sense of courage. What you've got to hear is this battle-hardened warrior telling, kind of pointing to the armor, saying, here is the key that you need to, uh, to live out this sense of courage that you see in me. My point is that this armor should change us from a kind of ragtag bunch of, of all sorts to a, a kind of hardened military force uh, ready for the battle that God's called us to. That Paul's contention here is the armor of God, the gospel, is the means of transformation. As you embrace the armor of God that he's given, you'll be slowly transformed into the confident people of God. And I would argue that the church is in desperate need of this. And I really, what I mean is the church in the Western world. I think we're experiencing something of a crisis of confidence as we, um, for all sorts of different factors, uh, not least the kind of uh, postmodernism in our culture, which says really there's, that there's no such thing as, exclu- as uh, absolute truth and that uh, you, you shouldn't really uh, be able to kind of uh, tell us that your truth is actually true for everybody. Or, or, or even the way that I think the way that Christianity or Christian sexual ethics, as we've heard at length, are kind of at a great distance from the cultural norms and uh, the, the way the rest of our culture sees things. Uh, for those two reasons, and there are many others, uh, I think Christians are feeling something of a, um, a kind of a transition from being at the center of culture, from being really kind of the accepted norm uh, in the UK 30, 40, 50 years ago, that was the case, to now kind of being on the edge of society. And, and with that kind of position of being on the edge, I think then Christians often feel a sense of fear, a sense of um, a fear that what we, people think of them if they tell people they're a Christian. That means that for some Christians, I think there's, there's even a fear of identifying as a Christian, Uh, For others, I think this leads to compromise churches, um, adopting certain stances to try and fit in with the rest of culture. Or for others, I think it just means a silence, uh, a sense that the church kind of um, withdraws and we just kind of try and build our our little holy huddle rather than thinking, actually, our job is to go and influence the world. So what I'm arguing is that the church needs to regain its confidence. Think about the way that Peter and John in, uh, in the book of Acts, how they're pulled in front of the uh, Jewish authorities and they instruct them to stop speaking about Christ. And what's their response? We can't. We basically, basically say we can't stop speaking about Christ. Judge for yourselves whether it's right or wrong that we obey you, but we cannot speak, stop speaking about Christ. And that is the sense of courage that propelled the church and the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And the church today needs to recover something of that confidence. And the weapons that Paul is describing here are key for that. And I think when we look at these weapons, I would also add that there's something often I think we neglect these weapons. 
We talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, these gospel boots. They kind of feel ordinary. They feel routine. They feel basic. Kind of put it like that, that many Christians will say, yeah, I, I know I need help, but I don't need help from those weapons. Like, in, I want something a bit more exciting. Um, maybe you feel like you've already got them. Maybe you, and I would argue, yes, pro- you do. If you're a Christian, you, you have this righteousness. But what he's saying, really, what you want to understand is that Paul is saying, not that uh, simply these things need to be in your life. When he's talking about putting on the armor, what he's talking about is a kind of the way that the truth starts to saturate your life. That actually these things become your attitudes. That as you start to, um, it's a bit like a picture of like when you're making a cake and you put an ingredient in the box, you, uh, in the bowl. You need to kind of knead the ingredients into the, into the pastry or baking's not my strong point, but you know what I mean. The, 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 uh, the, the, the way you need to work these ingredients in, that's a little bit like the way that Paul is seeking to, to work these truths into your heart. What he's saying is that they don't need to be kind of superficial and out there. Actually, they need to subjectively feel like the very um, foundation of your instincts and your, and your deepest convictions. So what does this courageous Christianity look like? Well, let's talk through each of these weapons in turn. First of all, the belt of truth. I would say, suggest to you that when you put on the belt of truth, you know what you believe. And when you know what you believe then you can be this kind of confident or courageous Christian. A life saturated by the truth is essential for this kind of confidence. So what is Paul describing here? Well, first of all, the word belt is a little bit um, unhelpful here. Obviously, it's the the best word that translators can come up with, but it's much more than a belt. Uh, We've got to understand here that Paul is describing a kind of set of armor here that the average Roman soldier would wear. So his, his... audience in reading this letter would know exactly what he's describing here but he's talking about this this belt here it's kind of a a kind of leather undergarment that um sits under the armor goes down to the knees protects the thighs and um and really it's kind of the foundational piece of armor not least because the rest of the armor then sits on top of this and it's actually, it's an entirely necessary piece of armor because this is the, uh, the armor that, you know, imagine that often uh, in those days people would wear kind of long cloaks. They would tuck those long cloaks into this belt so they'd have the kind of freedom to move and to fight. So this, this armor is kind of the, the, this belt is the first and most essential piece of armor. And it's not a coincidence that Paul is talking about the belt of truth. What he's saying is that essentially the, the truth is the way into the rest of the armor. What I mean by that is, I'd say like the, um, think about the rest of the pieces of armor. Think about the helmet of salvation. Well, if you are not sure whether any of the Christian faith is true, the helmet of salvation is relatively meaningless. Or, you know, talk about this uh, shield of faith. Well, you can't have faith in faith. You have faith in someone or something. So faith presupposes that it's true, that Jesus is who he said he is. I'd put it like this, that that truth is like the foundation stone of the Christian house. And you can think, well, you can do a beautiful house up there, but if your foundations are are not there, the house will collapse. He's saying that this truth is essential, it's integral to the Christian faith. What it means is if you're not a Christian, this is where you need to start. You've got to ask yourself, is the Christian faith true? Is Jesus who he said he is? Is the resurrection, namely the claim that three days after Jesus died, he was raised to life, is that the biggest hoax in history or is it true? Because on that question, the Christian faith hangs or falls. If it's not true, if it's a hoax, if it was wishful thinking by the disciples, then it's utterly irrelevant and you can ignore the rest of it. You see this in the way that the gospel writers uh, write their accounts. They're saying, this is, we're writing this so that you might see what happened and so that you might believe. It's not that Christians are kind of uh, suspending their, their thinking or kind of going through some kind of wishful thinking. It's their found, a faith founded on reality, founded on truth. Now, some of you will struggle to hear this because this whole talk of truth feels exclusive. It feels dogmatic. It almost feels cultish. The idea, oh, you need to focus on the truth and kind of sounds a little bit like mind control to some of you. I'll just say two things to that. One is that truth cannot be relative. 
We know this in science. We know this in history. Either the Battle of Hastings happened or it didn't, right? There's no, no two ways about it. In the same way, this is, these kind of existential questions are also on that, work on that same basis. Either Jesus is the Messiah or he's not. And I know sometimes we like to say that there's truth in everything because we're trying to kind of um, include everyone or we're trying to honor everyone or we're just trying to have a society where we can live in peace. But I would argue that you don't need to jettison the idea of truth to, uh, to try and live in a peaceful society. And really, if you're to take these claims seriously, you need to ask yourself, are they true? And also, if you're kind of one of those people who say, well, there's truth in everything, actually, in a way, that's, sim- that's a truth claim. Because what you're saying then is that basically everything else is not true. Or every other people who would say, no, our thing is absolutely true, they're not right. So essentially, you're making that same kind of exclusive truth claim. The second thing you've got to do, really, the second response to that is, you've got to understand the scale of the claim that Jesus is making about himself. He's not claiming to be like a teacher who just has truthful things to say or uh, kind of good ideas. He's claiming to be the very source of truth himself, to be the embodiment of truth. He describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And you've got to understand that it's not just kind of truth over there. This is truth that will change your life. Or at least this is the claim that he's making. In John 8, uh, verse 31, he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's saying this is not truth that you leave on a shelf somewhere that you read in a textbook. This is truth that will give you real, tangible freedom. And he goes on, it's freedom from sin. It's freedom from the evil desires that we all face and experience. He's saying, if you abide by this truth, if you bring this truth into your life, it will change your life. It's not kind of academic truth. It's life-changing truth. So then really what I want to argue then is that that this truth is essential in the life of the believer. It's essential that the, it's not just that the believer kind of knows that Christianity is true. It's that their life is saturated by this truth. Uh, One commentator in describing this armor said the he calls it the girdle, but there's all sorts of different words that people use this, uh, for this belt, uh, gave the soldier a sense of security. He was ready, keyed up, alert, tense, and toned for action. This soldier was, was ready and primed, strengthened by the truth. That's why the old translation says, gird up your loins. It's saying, be strengthened by this truth. And I'd say that when a Christian really is living a life which is saturated by the truth, it's a, a bit like a sponge which you dip into water and you kind of see it's all uh, lots of water <laughs> on the sponge. You know what I mean? You can picture it in your mind. The, the sponge is, is saturated with the water, uh, drenched in the water. That's the picture of the Christian here, what I'm trying to dip, push you towards here, the, of a life that is immersed utterly in God's truth. And when you do that, I think... Um, you find a strength. But equally, when you don't do that, then I think you find a life that is kind of rudderless and actually is easily defeated and compromised. Let me give you a few examples of how this this truth strengthens you as a Christian. I think understanding the the truth enables you to respond to critics. What I mean by that is we all, we live in a society where we're always going to get questions, challenges, uh, different different voices around the Christian faith. And I think for some of you, that's a deeply intimidating prospect. Uh, some of you don't like talking to your friends about your Christian faith because you're worried they're going to say something that either you can't answer or is going to actually damage and undermine your faith. And I would argue that you're in that position because you haven't saturated yourself in the truth. That actually, that as you understand and imbibe this truth, you start to understand the nuances of your faith that enable you to answer some of the criticisms that people will throw at you. Think about in 1 Peter, he tells Christians to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He's not just talking about your ability to kind of share your testimony. I think he's talking about the ability to explain why you believe what you believe. I think this is a sharp rebuke to those of you, and you may have heard this as you were growing up, when you kind of asked a question, someone said, you just got to have faith. Actually, that's kind of the opposite of what he's talking about here. Actually, faith is trust. And trust, the Christian, the Christian uh, act of trust, is not a kind of trust in spite of the facts. It's a trust because of the facts. So secondly, then, I want to say that the truth enables you to, desert, 
to discern the difference between lies and truth as you encounter them in the world. You've got to understand the context here, what Paul's talking about. That he's talking about uh, the spiritual battle against Satan, who elsewhere is described as the liar. He's the one who's going to throw different lies at you, and we talked about that last time. Different accusations. On top of that, we live in a world of thousands of voices. We imbibe countless amounts of information. Some of those voices will be good and they'll say really profound and helpful things. Others will be either subtly undermining our faith or seeking, speaking untruthful things that undermine the good work of God in your life. Think about it. I know this is very general terms, but when you watch a romantic comedy, often the subtle, unsaid message of that romantic comedy is uh, if you're single, you need to be fixed and uh, that you cannot live a happy life as a single person. Or watch any kind of coming-of-age teenage movie, and you're generally going to come away with the conclusion that sexual exploration is a necessary part of the transition to adulthood. Both of those things I don't believe. But actually it's because you build this, this, this bank, this understanding of truth that enables you to be able to filter and engage with the different ideas that you're encountering in the world. You know, sometimes Christians, in response to these thousands of voices, have sought to detach themselves from the world, sought to kind of disengage with any of those voices. I think that's a really, it's rubbish idea. Practically, it's not possible. Practically, also, it's not the model that we see in the New Testament. Actually, called to be in the world and not of it, not, not separate from the world. And the only way you can do that is by having a rich and foundation of truth to be able to respond and to engage with the different ideas that you're hearing. I think this is particularly important for parents thinking about bringing up their children. I would also argue that when you understand the truth, when it's gone deep down into your soul, it gives you the ability to walk through different trials. Think about it like this. If, you, if you're always vacillating, if you're always wondering, I'm not sure whether this is true, and you're kind of always uncertain, when you go through difficult things, you're much more likely to give up. You're much more likely to say, well, I'm not even sure it's true in the first place, and I'm just going to walk away from it. If you have a, a cast iron conviction in the truth of this faith, you can walk through. I've seen this in people going through trials right now in the life of the church as they go through some of the most profoundly challenging circumstances. Because they have a conviction that it's true, they're able to keep walking. And this truth then is essential to the church. You've got to think that the church really is a community centered around this truth means that's why elders are, are called to have the ability, the, the one ability, uh, lots of character requirements, but the one ability that te- elders must have is the ability to teach. means that the, the, what do we require of our leaders in the church? The ability to teach. Why? Because we're a community centered on truth. That's why uh, Paul is writing to letters to all sorts of different, to address all sorts of false teaching. He's saying it's so dangerous to have different wrong thinking um, per- kind of propagating in the church. I think it's a tragedy when the church jettisons this value of truth. Actually, kind of, uh, it's a bit like, imagine a kind of um, traditional community of different huts around one central kind of fire pit that kind of provides the energy and the, and the life and the sustenance and the, and the food and enables these people to be able to cook, etc., etc. It's the source of all life in that community. The minute you, if you were to follow the analogy, just kind of destroy that fire, to put that fire out, that community would die. I would say that is the place of truth in the Christian community. That when you jettison truth and you uh, kind of leave it to one side, actually that leads to the death of the church. And so the question then is, how close are you to the truth? It's not enough just to believe in Christ. It's, has the truth changed you on the inside? Are you mastered by the truth? Are you seeking to pursue truth? Do you have a hunger to understand how the Christian faith changes every part of life? To see all the different ways the gospel works its way out in in everything from relationships and parenting and family and work and art and culture and everything to see this truth worked its way out in your lives. So that's the belt of truth. Let's move on to the breastplate of righteousness. To be truly courageous in life, I think I would argue strongly that you need to know who you are. You need to have a really strong conviction of your identity. So saying, 
Take on the belt of truth. Know what you believe. And then take on the breastplate of righteousness. Have a clear idea of who you are. What's he describing here? (coughs) Um, What's he describing here is is this breastplate is a kind of uh, armor protecting the abdomen. It's absolutely essential. It's protecting the vital organs. What is he talking about when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness? I think righteousness is, is often quite an unfamiliar concept to us. We don't really hear it used in our culture. And, and if we are, do hear it used, we tend to use it to describe uh, people who think they're better than other people, people who look down on, them, on others. What does he mean by righteousness? Well, the primary understanding that Paul has here, Paul has in view, is very different. He's talking about the righteousness of Christ, Christ's perfection. He's saying he is the one who has never sinned, who's got a perfect record. And that is what he's describing when he talks about his righteousness. Actually, really, Christ's character. Christ's perfect character. It's perfect record of his life. And what he's saying is that there is a, an exchange that takes place when, um, on the cross. That as Christ dies, that, that for all those who believe in him, they receive this righteousness. This righteousness of Christ becomes theirs. I think we often think of this just in terms of um, forgiveness of sins. The idea that you know, there's a kind of blank slate. And that's definitely true. But I think it's more than that. It's actually a, a receiving of Christ's righteousness. I want to read to you what one author said. said, it is the end of time, and we stand before the judgment seat of God. An angel begins to read from a heavy book. It takes many hours for him to do so. And with every line, we feel more helpless. The book is a record of all the sins we committed in our lives. Eventually, the angel stops speaking, and God asks him, tell me, whose name is on the cover? To our great surprise, the angel replies, Jesus of Nazareth. Then he takes another book and begins to read again. The account of this life could not be more different. It is full of love, truth, compassion, and perfect righteousness. Not a single sin is mentioned. Only one man has ever lived like that. Once more, God asks, whose name is on the cover? And the angel replies. Replies any of your names. Replies Andrew Howe. Replies Joy Schaefer. Prize Tom Wheatley, that, that that righteousness of Christ is now yours. And that perfect description is actually about you. So what does this mean? Well, of course, this means for the Christian that you have assurance of salvation. It means you're going to spend eternity with God. That is taken for granted. But I think this, this kind of starts, this should speak into our present experience. It means that each one of the records that we hold on to, each one of those negative reports, all the things that we are ashamed about that we've done in the past, um, the record of sins that we've committed against others, everything we've done has been wiped away. And in its place, we've received new clothes, new armor, that isn't ours, but is Christ's. There's a new verdict over us, a new label, a new mark that we are righteous, that we are perfect like Christ. I think we often talk about sonship in this church, but it's not just sonship that we've received. It's not just the ability to call on our Father. It's that we have been made perfect sons like Christ, like the only perfect son. This potentially feels uh, removed or irrelevant from our everyday life. Or you kind of say, yeah, I get this. This is kind of Christianity 101. I've heard it many times before. But actually, I think if you start to observe the way you live, you'll see that actually it takes a long time for this truth really to sink deep into our consciousness. We tell ourselves we've got it, but actually there's lots of signs that we haven't got it at all. Let me give you a few examples. One is we seek to justify ourselves by our activities, by our good deeds, by our uh, achievements, by our success. We seek to build a kind of record of achievement that says, this is why I matter. 
Either we do it mentally, sometimes we tell other people about it. There's all sorts of ways that this kind of behavior manifests itself. It's a kind of, hu- I would argue it's a deep human instinct to want to be justified. And we use all sorts of things to justify ourselves. But what that kind of shows is that you haven't understood that the central justification in your life is not found in those things, but is found in this new verdict that you have received from Christ. We compare ourselves to other people. We say, well, at least I'm not like them. So basically trying to justify yourself. We don't like failure. We don't like the verdict of failure. This week, uh, Jen and I had uh, Caleb's, we have a young son who's just approaching 11 months, and we had his one-year test. So the state kind of checks on how he's developing and has a series of different milestones that he needs to have met. And kind of to our horror... Uh, he, uh, he is, his communication skills are not quite where they should be. Now, obviously, this is hard to believe. He's with me as a father. I can't stop talking. Hard to believe that. Perhaps that's the reason. Um, <laughs> not giving him enough space. But it's um, absolutely fascinating if you do a social experiment of, of kind of our response as we came out, as we were talking and saying, well, you know, it's, it's actually a bit early to do the test. You're meant to be doing it at 11 months. He's actually still got 10 days today before the test. So we've got time for him to reach those milestones. And I was thinking I could probably Google the test and then redo it and check that he's met the standard by the time he actually comes to 12 months. Or all sorts of ways that we're trying to, you know, Jen say, no, I talk to him all the time. Basically, what we eventually come to the conclusion is that we, many years since we left school, we still do not enjoy failure. That we are you know, many of us will relate to this. We're kind of addicted to success. We don't like that verdict. But it's because I think we're not giving enough attention to the, the, the actual verdict that's been pronounced over us. Some of us seek to make up for, uh, for kind of particularly big sins. So we say, you know, maybe after doing something really big, you say something that you, know, you think I really, that was really wrong. I'm going to spend double the amount of time reading my Bible this week. Or I'm going to really make sure I do my quiet time. Why? Because you're trying to make up for what you've done. You've missed the central point that you have already been declared righteous. Or that persistent sense of spiritual failure that accompanies so many of us. Or that sense of guilt that kind of hangs around your neck. Saying, actually... Of course, it's true that we don't, do, uh, we don't live the lives that God's called us to. But the reason that doesn't sink us, the reason that doesn't paralyze us, is because we have this verdict of righteousness. So if that's you, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. But I'm saying this does say that, we need, that you need to put on this breastplate more. You need this truth of, this God, of the gift of righteousness to sink deep down into your soul. And I'm convinced when you do that, it has a transformative effect in a couple of ways. One, it enables you to endure and to walk through sin. We know from last time that Satan is the accuser. He loves to use our sin to isolate us, to rob us of joy, or even just to kind of create a kind of sense of distance between us and God. I know Christians, when they sin big, they say, oh, I can't really approach God. Maybe like they leave it a day or so before they kind of start to pray. Or spirals of sin. You say, well, I've sinned now, so I might as well just carry on. Or uh, kind of say, well, I could never be used by God, if, once, if you've seen what my life looks like. And the breastplate of righteousness is the antidote to all of this. It should give us a sense of gutsy guilt. As Martin Luther put it, love God and sin boldly. He's not saying go and sin. He's saying that when you sin, know that you are a child of God, that you have been made righteous. Do not allow it to rob you of that sense of sonship, of the knowledge that you are God's child and that you have received this righteousness. I think it's when we lose that sense of righteousness that we, like a dog, return to our sin, uh, return, like a dog returning to its vomit, we return to our sin because we kind of feel like, oh, I'm just rubbish and I just carry on in this pattern rather than actually receiving this breastplate of righteousness and holding on to that. And when you put on this breastplate, you walk with joy, full of confidence. Um, And I think for us, I think it's important to remind ourselves of this verdict. The second thing I would say this breastplate does for us is it reminds us, sorry, it gives us the ability to endure through suffering. The greatest lie, I think, that Satan feeds believers in suffering is God doesn't really love you. This shows it. This proves to you that God doesn't love you. So how, could, how can God be good when he's allowed this to happen to me? 
Yet this breastplate of righteousness, imagine for the moment, just the proximity of it, just the, the reality of it, the way that this breastplate is available to you at all times. It's the, the kind of physical, obviously it's not actually physical, but it's the tangible reminder of God's love for you. That the only reason you have this breastplate of righteousness is because he loved you enough to lay down his life for you, to give his life for you. So this breastplate of righteousness is the ultimate tangible reminder of his love that cannot be taken away from you. Whatever you're going through, it is a demonstration of his love for you. So that's the breastplate of righteousness. Let's talk briefly about the gospel boots. I think when you put on uh, these, these uh, a readiness given by the gospel of peace, you will become ready for the battle. You are ready for the battle. Paul goes on in uh, verse 15 to say, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What's he describing here? He's describing that a kind of essential piece of kit for the Roman soldier, a kind of sandal which has got studs at the bottom, a bit like a, or Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes it as shoes thickly studded with sharp nails. What you've got to imagine, for those of you who are not so familiar with Roman um, equipment, Roman army equipment, is football boots. Football boots or, or soccer studs um, <laughs> translate into every language here. Um, <laughs> the, the, you've got to understand that it's kind of these studs, the way they, di- they dig into the ground, they give the, the Roman soldier a kind of sturdiness, a firmness. Uh, actually, it's interesting. They don't just give a firmness. They actually also give a mobility because they enable the soldier to, to cover really large amounts, uh, 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 really big distances. Because they, and, and actually, this, this is what historians will say is one of the secrets to the success of the Roman, Roman army is they're able to cover huge distances and able to kind of get to where the enemy uh, wasn't expecting them to be. Why? Because they have these studs that fall into the ground that mean they can cover ground very quickly. So it gives them both a firmness, a kind of rigidity as they dig into the ground. Not like me when I was playing in my trainers at the weekend away. I managed to tackle myself when I was on the ball and uh, fall on my, on my hand and my rib. And to this day, I still have bruised ribs from the weekend away. So anyway, enough about my medical complaints. But the, my, my point is, there's a sense of sturdiness and a mobility and an agility, neither of which I had on the football pitch. And what I think he's talking about is a kind of gospel firmness and a forward-looking, a forward uh, orientation to share the gospel. Let me talk about the gospel firmness. What he's saying is when you understand the gospel, when you understand this narrative, which is, by the way, the dominant narrative of your life, not your achievements, not, what you're, not your family, not anything, the dominant narrative of your life, if you're a Christian, is this gospel story that you were once dead in your transgressions and you've been made alive with Christ and that you are now his child and you've got an eternal security that you're going to spend eternity with him. This gospel story, when you truly understand it, it gives you a firmness. It gives you a rigidity, an ability to weather storms, but also, and of, of course, to weather the, the accusations of Satan. But it, more than that, and I want to dig specifically into the ability to um, withstand certain cultural pressures. And what I mean by that is we live in a world uh, where at times we are going to be challenged to do, uh, to, to fit in with culture. It's a human nature, we all want to fit in with other people. But also there'll be times when specifically we'll be actively encouraged um, to do certain things that, that go against our consciences, that go against what God's called us to do. Uh, and of course the expectation of the New Testament is that Christians will look different to the world. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me give you an example of this kind of pressure that you might encounter. I've encountered this a number of times in my uh, professional working life to, to do things that, um, to be encouraged to do things that are not of God. I'm not talking about working for the church in the last year and a half, you'd be glad to know. Um, but <laughs> as my boss is over there in the corner. Um, but what, I, what I'm talking about is, the, um, is often in, my, in the workplace, in, in uh, different businesses. I remember when I was first working in London, in my first year, uh, being asked to lie as part of my as I was job as a, a junior strategy consultant. Um, 
we would send out pitch decks to clients, which would set out the different uh, what we would do for them and also the qualifications of the different consultants. And those of us who were just new were basically encouraged to make up fake experience in, to be included in this um, paragraph of skills. And I, there were lots more about this company that weren't so positive, but <laughs> so we won't dwell on them. But it was just fascinating. This was just normal. And I remember I was in the middle of this open plan office being, being told by a manager to do this, to kind of go away, to, to basically make up stuff. And I was kind of like, how could you do, how could you expect that, me to do that kind of thing? And her just saying like, you've got to get with the program. Everyone does it. This is what we do. Just do it. And I remember going to the toilet and just being like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm really new in this job. <laughs> am I going to get fired if I, um, if I do this, if I don't do this, sorry, um, and, ha- and praying about it. And, um, and yeah, and on that occasion, I just did all the work and left that bit blank and gave it back to her. And you know, I think she did it or got someone else to do it. But um, Actually, there were a number of occasions like that, and there, were, and that, there was at least one occasion I can remember where, where I wasn't so honest. But what enables you to be able to say no in those moments? What enables you? What gives you the strength to be able to say, look, I'm willing to risk my career here. I'm willing to risk my popularity here. I'm willing to say no to what I'm being asked to do. And I think it's the, the gospel that will give you the greatest strength to do that. When you understand this gospel narrative, when you have such a clear sense that actually you are, are walking to a different drumbeat, but more than that, that you have received such a treasure, such a richness, such a wealth in the gospel that actually it's worth risking anything else, losing anything else for the sake of staying faithful to Christ. So look, in a sense, what I'm saying is it's a, it's, I had to make peace in that moment and other moments that... that I already had everything I needed in Christ and that if it meant staying faithful to him, that was okay, even if it meant the prospects of losing my job because he is worth it, but more than that, I'd received everything I need. And actually, I could trust him for my provision, that he would keep me in that job for as long as, pos- as, long as he wanted. So I think this gospel, there's a gospel security there, a knowledge that we have everything we need and the richer you feel in Christ, the more you're willing to go without. Think about the people who lay down their lives for the gospel, the guys who are martyrs, who, who are killed for their faith in Christ. The only way they do that is a conviction that what they're losing, their life, is nothing compared to the life they've received in Christ and that they're going to spend eternity with God. That's the only way that's possible. There's also a gospel loyalty that you know that you've now received uh, this sonship, that you're now a child of God. It means you have a new master. It means there's a higher calling on your life, a voice that is louder than all others or should be louder than all others, and that that is the voice that commands your loyalty. It's a great tragedy when the church loses sight of this truth. When the salt loses its saltiness, it becomes worthless. So the question is, are you ready to stand? Have you drawn your lines in the sand? Ironically, I think when you have the courage of your convictions, actually people respect that. Uh, over the course of that year, it became just a kind of normal thing. Like I remember, like do- partners would say, is the document done? I'd say, yeah, it's done. Just here, here, and here. You've lied, but other than that, it's finished. And they'd say, they just laugh. And, just, and it would just become a thing. Like, That's Jeremy. He has some weird morality. we just carry on. <laughs> it, yeah, don't worry. Um, yes, there's, the, the, the people actually will respect that. So with the gospel comes a firmness, a conviction not to compromise, but to stand firm against peer pressure and even persecution. But the final thing is that I think the gospel gives you a forward motion, a readiness to share the gospel itself. You've got to think, uh, when Paul says uh, that believers will have a readiness given by the gospel of peace, what are they ready for? It's a readiness for something. When you put on shoes, you put on shoes for a task. You put on hiking boots because you're going hiking, etc. So what is the readiness? The readiness is that this spiritual battle is not just a defensive battle. It's not just that Christians are seeking to endure. It's It's that actually Christians are seeking to proclaim the gospel and to, in doing so, push back the uh, dominion of darkness. As the gospel goes out, as people's lives are changed, actually, that is the spiritual battle. And so this courage, this confidence that this armor of God will give you is for a purpose. Yes, in one sense, it's just so that you can walk with a confidence and joy, but it's also so that that confidence would translate itself into a readiness, a willingness to take the gospel into the world. 
a willingness to say, you know what, there might be a cost here. People might think, occasionally they might think, I'm a religious lunatic. But it's worth it because this gospel is so precious, because it's such good news. This height, the depth, the width of God's love is such a precious thing. I want everyone to know it. There's a sense that when you, you only truly, I think, you know when you've truly understood the gospel, when you think, how can I not share this? When you think everyone's got to get in on this. This is such good news. Everyone's got to know. And there will be a cost. There will be difficulties involved. But it's that kind of conviction that this is the best news in the world, that this is the best thing we can do for people, and that security, knowing that actually people can't touch the most precious thing for you, the the salvation you've received, that will propel you out into the world. Joy um, mentioned, Joy Schaefer, not the Christian gift of joy, um, I'm talking about, uh, joy mentioned um, in Acts 20 when we were praying out, just, I've lost the reference now, Um, verse 24, 2024, and this is Paul's words, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the, God, the kingdom will see my face again. And he goes on. But my point is, he talks about, I do not account my life of any value. He's saying he's willing to give up his life for this work. Why? Because it's such a, such a powerful and important gospel that demands to be shared with the world. So when this all comes together, what I want you to see is that when you immerse yourself in the gospel, when you understand the gospel, you have a new firmness and a new readiness to share it. When you understand the truth, when you gird up your loins with the truth, you have a new strength, a new conviction, a new robustness to your faith. And when you understand the breastplate of righteousness, you know who you are and no one can take that away from you. And when you put these things together, I want you to imagine for a moment, many of you will have seen depictions on the TV of the Roman um, army. You can kind of picture it's a, it's a truly intimidating sight. And that is the picture that God is building as we put on this armor. Actually, just imagine for a moment the church that understands who it is, that understands its convictions and knows that it, what it's about, knows the mission that God's called it to. That church will be a sight to behold. That will be a dangerous church, a church that will have a profound influence in the context it's in. And that is the result of putting on this armor. But the last thing I would say is really, this is an encouragement to put on Christ. This is Christ's truth. He is the truth. He is our righteousness. He is the breastplate of righteousness. And and the gospel is his story. So when you're putting on this armor, you're putting on Christ. And so if the band wants to come up, when when we worship together and when we take communion... This is our opportunity to celebrate the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. And that's a victory that he won on the cross, that he destroyed sin and death. But it's also the victory and the victory he will bring, but it's also the victory that he has won in your life. That as you put on this armor, the victory that he's working out, the robustness that he's giving you, the strength that he's giving you, the new passions, the new desires that he's putting in you, we celebrate God's work in our lives as we take on, as this truth sinks deep into our souls.